This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, the Program Director of the Graduate Certificate, Master of Science and PhD in Palliative Care. And as you know, this is our ongoing series of Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, our podcast series, and these are being used in our educational programs. I'm delighted to be joined by Connie Dolan, who's one of the faculty members in both the Masters and the PhD, and our guest today, Dr. Kathleen Foley. Connie, why don't you take it from here? So I'm so excited to have uh, Dr. Foley, and I just, I don't even know, Dr. Foley, if you know, you have a Wikipedia page. Yes, you do. (laughs) So in terms of introducing um, everyone, Dr. Foley has been in um, pain and palliative care and cancer care for a number of years. Um, She was an attending neurologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. Um, She's done a lot of work, which we'll talk about from working with the World Health Organization to working with the Open Society Institute's Project on Death in America. Um, she has helped really support the research of a lot of people. There is a Kathleen Foley retreat that's held every year to um, help new researchers think about um, how they're going to plan their future careers. Um, and she's been involved in so many other pieces. So without further ado, I'm going to let Dr. Foley talk a little bit about how she got into this work and um, what was that in the time. So you were just telling us a little bit about how things started in the 80s. Um, So one, thank you, uh, Lynn and and Connie, and thank you for um, helping to further educate um, everyone in the world about um, palliative care, Um, because I think there's an enormous need for graduate level uh, courses and for programs, and so I'm totally supportive of this. I think it's spectacular, and the world will benefit from it, so thank you. Having said that, um, yeah, there's a long history, and whoever, you know, tells the story tells it their way. Uh, So in part, this is my way uh, or my perspective. So my perspective is a neuro-oncologist placed in a cancer center, asked to develop a pain research program and being confronted with um, in the now, first in the early seventies with large numbers of cancer patients who predominantly were receiving intramuscular pain medicine um, on a PRN basis. um, And sometimes were given placebos. So that was the seventies. That was the mid seventies. Um, I trained in one of the best neurology programs in the world. Um, I trained in the the best medical program in the world, you'd say. And never had I even written orders for an opiate for a patient as a neurologist. So that's like pretty extraordinary. So here I was placed into the circumstance to develop a research program when I didn't know a lot about pain. Fast forward from that, it became clear that pain, um, we decided, was a neurological complication of cancer and uh, was a, um, a pillar of the development of the field of neuro-oncology. And luckily I had an extraordinary chairman of that department, Dr. Posner, who felt that pain was critically important and he convinced me to come to Memorial. So I was there with Dr. Ray Hood and with Ada Rogers, a wonderful, extraordinary analgesic nurse observer. And so I learned how to assess pain from Ada Rogers, from a nurse. Um, and I went on rounds with her and I learned how to talk to patients and I learned how to assess them. And I learned 
um, the methodology of doing clinical analgesic trials from Ray Hood and, and from Ada Rogers. And so part of our research program was then to figure out who had pain and cancer. And the numbers that we found then are the numbers that still seem to pretty much exist. That a third of cancer patients um, in active therapy and two thirds with advanced disease of pain. And um, this is the same for children. Although in children, it was not typically advanced disease, but rather procedures that was a, caused a high occurrence of pain. And this was, was at a point in time that um, there was little expertise on, on many of the now, what are the standard components of care. Um, the hospice movement was burgeoning and I played an important role in the sense of being able to provide the evidence base for how to use drugs in pain with patients with cancer. We studied heroin um, and demonstrated that the Brompton cocktail, although widely useful for, the, um, for those in England, was not really um, uh, necessarily going to be effective for Americans. One, because heroin is a highly charged um, illegal substance in the United States. And so the study that we did was we were able, uh, with support from the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, uh, to obtain um, confiscated heroin, uh, to give it um, uh, in um, varying doses to patients compared to mor morphine, and to demonstrate that heroin was a great good analgesic, but it didn't look any better than heroin and patients didn't really seem to prefer it any differently. There were a small number of patients who seemed to do better on heroin and fast forward, they became a group of patients who we now think probably have different split variants of their morphine receptor. So moving forward, we developed this program in pain. We argued for what the best uh, guidelines um, and treatment should be of the cancer pain patient. And we argued that the uh, opioids were the mainstay of therapy. And that uh, the WHO at the same time with colleagues in uh, Italy, uh, Vittoria Ventafrida, um, and with uh, John Benica, who was at that point the uh, president of the International Association for the Study of Pain, uh, with Mark Swerdlow, who was a British anesthesiologist. We met together and said, we need to do something um, that the WHO could take forward. And Jan Sternsvard was the then um, head of the cancer unit at WHO. And he was a great advocate uh, for a WHO public health model for, for uh, cancer care, of which palliative care was a critical point. And so in 1982, we met in Italy and had a meeting from which in 1986, we published the first guidelines for WHO. They were field tested by Vittorio Vendafrida. Um, there's a lot of controversy about how they were tested, et cetera. But again, they demonstrated that the majority of patients would require a strong opioid uh, at the end of their life. And that led to the um, mandate of the WHO to have morphine as an essential medicine. So that was happening sort of internationally. Um, but at, back at Memorial, where most of the work was done, um, our focus was on trying to improve the care of cancer patients with pain, uh, yet um, the majority of our patients died. Um, and so we were really lacking in how we were going to provide really good end of life care. So we had good symptom management, we sort of got that down, but we didn't have a process of care. And um, through the 80s, we worked hard, we created the supportive care program, we worked with WHO, we were developing really, I think much of our efforts were focused and my efforts were focused on improving pain for patients with cancer. And um, in that framework, um, we uh, moved to 
begin to advocate much more broadly for a system of care that would allow patients to receive um, continuous uh, supportive palliative care at home uh, without requiring them to have to give up their active treatments. So fast forward in 1993 or 94, 93, a, a woman, uh, Patricia Pram, a social worker and a friend of George Soros called me up and asked me if I would meet with her to discuss George Soros's interest in improving the care of the dying in the United States. And so we met and we eventually, um, this eventually led to a program of which I became the director called the Project on Death in America. And I've sent Connie, I'm sorry, Lynn, I did not send you a copy. I only have a copy, but I sent a copy of this book that David Clark has written on the Project on Death in America. Um, it, it's probably a little tedious, but you can, uh, but there are elements in it that you might find helpful or useful. And David was a, David Clark from the beginning as a sociologist and I would say a social historian, uh, a medical historian, he, uh, we, we um, uh, contracted with him to write the history. And so he had access to all of the meetings and notes and publications that we had out of that project. So fast forward, the project on death in America, uh, of which Susan uh, Block became a, a co-director of the scholars program, um, was focused on improving the care of the, United, in, of the dying in the United States. And from 1994 to, for nine years, we had $45 million to improve the care of the dying. And although at the beginning, we thought this was an enormous amount of money, we rapidly saw that it was not anything about what we needed to do. But luckily, uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation under, uh, with the leadership of the program officer, Rosemary Gibson, also had in this extraordinary um, um, $250 million effort to improve the care of the dying in the United States. So we were lucky to be able to collaborate and partner with them and to learn from them and to work with them. And so what happened in the 90s was that um, there was this extraordinary attention to like who dies and where do people die and how do they die? And so I went to an Institute of Medicine meeting where it became apparent that we really knew nothing about how people died in the United States. And so this fast forward led to the report called Approaching Death, which was supported by the Institute of Medicine, which our project on Death in America supported, um, to be able to look very critically at um, how we care for people in the United States. And then in 2001, a second publication uh, was focusing on the care of children um, who were dying in the United States. And so both of those, I think, are landmark publications that anyone who wants to read the history of at least the US history should probably read, okay? For those at an international level, probably they should read some of the early chapters um, in the Oxford Textbook of Palliative Care uh, that were published in, those, in that same period of time in the early 90s, because they would give another tip of scope of what was happening internationally. So, coming at, so our project on death in America was to support um, scholars, and we eventually had 89, 87 scholars in various disciplines, predominantly physicians, um, we then developed a nursing leadership program that Betty Farrell helped direct, and we developed a social work program. Um, and each one of those has been enormously successful because the current leaders in the field, the physicians, the nurses, the social workers, are the leaders. They're the people who have taken over the, in my mind, have taken over the world and moved the, and sustained the field. And so the social work program continues to exist, um, the, uh, continues to advocate 
um, and has been closely allied with the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, although remains a separate group. And the nursing program, clearly HIPNA, um, um, uh, the, the program evolved into HIPNA, whether extraordinary leadership programs. And the um, scholars program are, you know, many of the scholars are now out, you know, 20 years, 25 years, and they're, you know, they're the editors of the journals, they're the chairs of the department, um, they're extraordinary leaders. So, um, so that project was very, had a very elite strategy. And I think this is important because what we saw in 1993 and what we saw in the beginning and what we saw throughout the period of time was that there was a, everyone knew there was a problem. Everyone knew that people who were dying were not receiving appropriate care. Um, the majority of people were dying in hospitals. Um, the incredible support study. So I think this is another study that everyone should have to read and think about um, and probably have Joanne Lynn talk about it because it was, a, it was the game changer. It was a tipping point of where we moved to realize that how we care for the uh, people, how we provided end of life care in the United States was profoundly limited. And so in that, fretting, in that setting, we focused on the idea that we needed a very sort of elite strategy. And our elite strategy was that to change medicine, um, we needed to do so from within. So we created our Trojan horses. So our Trojan horses were these physicians who were assistant professor level, um, most of them not tenured, who uh, we supported their salaries for three years uh, to be able to, um, and, and we supported part of their salary. So I think it was $75,000 a year, maybe it was less, but not a huge amount of money. Um, but allowed them to have time to cultivate and develop their research expertise or their academic components in education or research or advocacy at their institutions. And so these, those groups um, have you know, now subsequently become the, the leaders, both in the US and we included Canada. So there were a series of Canadian experts. And so out of that group came you know, Harvey Chachanoff in Canada, Joanne Wolf in the US, Jim Tulsky, and I could go on and Bob Arnold, I mean, go on and on and on. So they're extraordinary. And out of the nursing leadership, again, extraordinary leadership that Betty uh, led. But the idea was that if we didn't have a healthcare, um, cadre of healthcare leaders, that we were not gonna ever change medicine. And you know, there were wonderful reports. So, I mean, it's fun if you go back and look, if you looked at the textbooks, Joanne, did, Joanne Lynn did a survey of textbooks and show that, um, that in the uh, textbook chapters in, in um, cardiac disease and congestive heart failure, when the algorithm got to you know, congestive heart failure at every treatment, it then went back to other supportive approaches. It never said the patients died, yet that was one of the leading causes of death. In 2000, so over this period of time in developing the project on death in America, um, our focus predominantly was on this medicine piece. We did a whole variety of programs in the humanities. We did a series of programs in arts. We gave uh, universities the opportunity to change their history or social science courses to talk about death and dying and do some kinds of meetings. And all of those I think were helpful in raising the sort of public awareness. But with $45 million, we didn't have money to do public awareness. And really I think to the credit and I think anyone who's trying to change a field has to decide you know, what their narrow focus is or how they're going to get focused. Um, and, 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 and what 
and, and how they would benefit from it. So Robert Wood Johnson did a much more sort of public engagement. Um, we did, there's some great videos, one you definitely want people to see. Um, it's a, about a video about developing hospice programs in prison, which was, you know, it's a 20 minute film and it's spectacular. So coming out of that, so we're, and I'm being fast here, but I will, um, and you can ask me specific questions, but coming out of that at Soros, we were, uh, we were a US programs and, and they felt that we should exit at the field, that we'd been pretty successful and they weren't really totally willing to give us more money to do this. But at the same time, um, the Soros, Soros has, the foundations have, have um, in Central and Eastern Europe and in Africa have foundations. And those foundations were taken up with the project on death in America, and they wanted us to help them internationally improve the care of the dying. So fast forward um, in around 2003, when we exited the project on death in America, we had started an international effort in 1997 in working with colleagues in South Africa. And then we began to expand that. And so then we had that project that went from about 2003 um, which is now exiting. So it's existed till two, 2021. The best way to know everything about that program is to read a series of papers that we published in the JPSM in about 2014 or 2015. Um, and there's a story for each one of those papers. But basically the framework of that was in 1999, we at, an, at the European Association of Palliative Care meeting um, in Geneva, we brought together the the staff of these foundations and ask them what they needed in their countries to be able to improve the care of the dying. So these are program officers working in a foundation and they're again, extraordinary people. And they came with saying, listen, we need education. We need you know, every type of training and we need policy. And if we're gonna do policy, we need to have the WHO being the policy maker for us because our governments will listen to policy. And so at that point in time, we developed and created this WHO model for palliative care and, um, and began working in that framework. And again, each of these foundations took up this mandate and they put $30,000 or $50,000 in their budgets. And we would match that from New York and help them to develop these programs in their countries. But we knew that they couldn't move forward unless they knew how to do needs assessments. So, you know, Stephen Connor was a great help to us because he was a consultant and, and worked in many of these countries, helping them put together, bring together the stakeholders in the countries, um, bring them together and begin to focus on what was needed to develop um, a palliative care initiative. And from the beginning, we only use the word palliative care. Um, from the beginning, many of these countries had just small starts of volunteer hospice programs um, many of them had had the exposure to Robert Twycross or Cecily Saunders or to the English movement. So they were clearly um, well-versed in the understanding of what hospice was. But uh, we were moving the envelope by saying, this is palliative care. This is for the serious little, probably in the last years of life. And it's not just about end of life, but it's taking care of patients with serious illness. So those, all of those papers exist and, and they and, and, and they are the models of some of the programs we did. So we created a roadmap of what a country has to do to develop a policy. And then some of the countries have reported how they did their, their roadmaps. And then we uh, provided 
um, support to develop essential medicines programs. And so working with WHO and working with the International Narcotic Control Board and working with experts um, like David Jurensen at the time or subsequently Jim, James Cleary and with Liliana DeLima, creating a model of essential drug policy. And so that was critically important because the major problem, so drug policy is a critically important piece of this because even now, um, the greatest public health inequity in the world, this is by the public health experts, is the lack of availability of, of strong um, uh, opioids in countries um, that uh, in middle and low income countries. And so the WHO was very much on our side with the mandate that, um, that for, and the focus was heavily initially on the cancer population, but then um, has in probably the last 10 years, so from like 2000, 2005 on, expanded to include a much broader, more geriatric program, uh, elderly population. And at the same time, the growth of uh, pediatric palliative care has happened. And so in, so again, as resources, um, Julia Downing recently gave a talk to us on a webinar for OSF as part of our exit strategy about the developments of what's happened in international children's palliative care. And so I think, you know, it's a great talk and I'm sure she'd be willing to give it to you or be available to you. So I to reach out to her and she's obviously a PhD nurse. And then, um, and so, so our efforts then from the Soros piece was that we had all these foundations. We had people in the foundations who wanted to work on it. And we had countries that wanted to work on this. So we were sort of the um, arbiter of, of providing and networking these individuals to be able to get the expertise they needed to create a national needs assessment, to create a national strategy, to figure out how to advocate with their representatives with some leadership skills and how to do appropriate drug policy. And the stories for each country are extraordinary. So in Georgia, for you to get a prescription, you would have to go into the local police station and walk all the way to the back to a room where somebody sat at a desk and gave out prescriptions. Um, in Ukraine, uh, the most amount of medication you could ever receive, uh, it would be 50 milligrams of IM morphine a day. Um, this is regulated by the government and a nurse would come to your house to provide it. So there were just extraordinary examples of what we consider to be really human rights abuses. So concurrently with creating this network and these foundations, we, um, and, and trying to argue that there was a moral imperative to do this, um, we learned that people didn't really care about the moral imperative and we needed more of a, a club to um, teach them that they needed to do this better. And so we um, then uh, began to coordinate with, first with, with Human Rights Watch and then specifically with Deirdre Lohman, who uh, again would be a great person to talk about how we could frame this within a human rights perspective. And at the Open Society Foundations, Jonathan Cohen and Tamara Zaire were two leaders that were interested in health and human rights. And so they were great, again, um, help, helpful. And so we created a campaign called Torture in Healthcare. And we used Ukraine as the example. And again, this is a, a extraordinary video, um, pointing out the, the difficulties of an individual with far advanced cancer trying to receive appropriate pain medicine. He's a very compelling guy. 
His mother does everything possible. His friends do everything. The hospice taken care of, try to help the best, but it's not enough because he doesn't get appropriate pain management. So we eventually use that kind of advocacy in this campaign on torture uh, to uh, accuse the Ukrainian government of torture in healthcare. And they have, did change the laws profoundly. Um, and what has happened in Ukraine is a great model of how palliative care, even though it's you know, still fledgling and still moving forward, um, was able to change policy by understanding what the issues were and what the human rights framework was. So we, were, we moved from a health framework to a health and human rights framework. And at the same time along, you know, there, there's so many elements, so I'm hitting the highlights here just to keep it short. Um, so what has come forth is that these individual countries have created at a, so we see the building palliative care at a country level requires enormous understanding of the environment and the local issues. At the same time is networking those individuals with an international network. And so the, the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care, whom we supported, and the Worldwide Hospice and Palliative Care Association that we also supported, we were supporting them through this foundation monies to be able to help network these individuals and train them and educate them. And then as we move forward, we decided we really needed an international leadership program. And Frank Ferris ran that. And uh, this, that was a program that there were approximately about 22 fellows. It was a highly intense program. They each had a mentor. They each had some monies that they could use. Um, there wasn't lots of monies, but monies that they clearly had at their discretion to use um, and to be able to advance palliative care. And they came from, uh, from uh, Kenya, I mean, Zippy. So another person that would be great to have speak is uh, Zippy. Uh, who is, runs the Hospice and Palliative Care Association in Kenya. And she herself um, obtained a PhD during this whole process um, from I think a British uh, university. Um, and Zippy has been a great advocate and leader, um, but began as a grassroots hospice leader um, in Kenya. And Kenya has been a great model of how they changed government policy, how they were able to train edu and, and educate physicians and how they were able to expand community workers. So all of this is occurring during the AIDS epidemic. <laughs> um, and so we supported the whole movement of community workers. And these are, you know, typically 10 or 20 community workers with one nurse assigned. And I've been, you know, out on rounds with them in South Africa and they're extraordinary. And they go from hut to hut and place to place, um, village to village, um, providing care and um, providing medications and um, in Ziploc bags, you know, morphine in these little Ziploc bags, pretty extraordinary, and being able to create a community of effort through these community workers who were incredibly well, um, were, were volunteers for the most part, but were well-resourced in understanding what um, their role was and, what, and how they could uh, provide supportive care to patients at home with a nurse supervisor. So those were great community workers. Fast forward from that, um, the uh, leadership program, as I said, that Frank created, and then there you know, are 10 million other programs within all of that. So um, that's like the big picture piece, okay? So we first did PDIA and then we did this international effort and we were there, you know, we were basically their advocates. But at every point there was a challenge. At every, at every attempt to do anything, there were people telling you you couldn't do it and you shouldn't do it and why would you do it? And, and this is, and one of the uh, criticisms of our program was that we never were able 
to create a civil society that sort of rose up and fought for the care of the dying. So I think, um, so in defense of that, uh, we didn't have enough money to do that um, because any uh, attempt to make change and what one's theory of change is, uh, to do change public attitudes requires extraordinary amounts of money because it requires a whole engagement of social media uh, and a whole other dilemma. So we didn't do that. So we were always more this elitist, we're gonna make the medical system work for these people so that when the demand is there, it'll be a system in place with people trained up to do this. And each of the groups are just extraordinary. Well, you know, Dr. Foley, I mean, it's so interesting though, because I, I also wonder, and you know, here we are and I mean, you, you kind of took us through and I was sort of thinking, you know, also with some of the other countries I know, like in Vietnam, the focus for palliative care was on, on AIDS care, because that's what yes. it was, the focus. So you also had to look at what diseases were that. But, you know, I think for the United States in particular, and I'd be curious, it sort of feels like we are the one country that is still so death denying. And even in spite of COVID, we're still death denying. So in terms of how you had to focus like a, the bang for your buck for your money, that is such a big change, right? To try to help people understand not only care for the dying, but like you are going to die. Like we're all gonna die. Um, and um, well, the great line was that, you know, for Americans, uh, you know, give me liberty or give me death and death is always a second choice. So <laughs> that's it. Um, but, but I, mean, I think, you know, again, you've sort of shown for our students who are listening to this, like there has been this very coordinated strategy that you couldn't have people just off doing things by themselves because that wouldn't have been affected. But that you had, um, you know, you were strategizing and starting off with the pain with the WHO when then the, the, the PDIA, but then at the same time, you're working with the national groups in the United States for consistency and Europe. I mean, so that this whole part about also thinking about, you know, you have this much money, that's always a big decision of how do you take that money and think about what's the best way to spend it, right? And hindsight's always 2020, but that you were trying to think about that and knowing, okay, well, you have Robert Wood Johnson, where, where do you figure out your expertise of where you interlink, but mm -hmm. where can you also be more effective by spreading out? Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, well I have two observations to make. You did a half an hour straight without inhaling, number one. And number <laughs> two, you are a mover, shaker, troublemaker, girl. Wow. Yeah. I never realized. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I literally don't take credit because there's so many different people. And, and Mary Calloway, who again would be great for you to talk with, Mary was the, uh, uh, the associate director of the Project on Death in America, and she became the director of the International Palliative Care Initiative. Wow. And she was a force that was even more extraordinary, I'm telling you. What a shape, I mean, what an amazing woman. And, um, and, and everyone that we um, engaged with um, did what they were supposed to do. Um, so, and it was incredibly collegial. Mm. And I think the good news for us from the Soros side was that we didn't need to take credit for anything mm -hmm. because we had a funder, we had the money and we didn't need to raise money. So we didn't have to prove to anybody else that this was the best thing. The other important piece for us was that George Soros said that if you didn't have failures, you weren't funding the right people. Mm. So we had this extraordinary, you know, um, opportunity to fail. All right. Right. Um, and at least in PDIA, the board was made up of you know people like Bob Butler, who had been the head of the National Institutes of Aging, and David Rothman, 
who was this extraordinary social historian, and Bo Bogart, who was a constitutional lawyer. So we had these great advisors who were very involved in the day-by-day -day activities of the Project on Death in America. They really bought into it. Yeah. And so that was also quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So there was just, it was just an extraordinary time of great people um, and, and a lot of convergence. And I think, you know, it's still sad to say that, um, that, that, that in the world, 50% of the people in the world have no access to palliative care and the other 50% um, have it in varying stages. And the more high income the country is, the better uh, access we have to palliative care. And if you look at the number for pediatric palliative care, you know, we have 20 million kids who could benefit from palliative care. Right. So, um, so I think that the element, the big picture, you know, this very big picture is we're not going to have palliative care anywhere unless we have policy, unless we have the economics on our side, I mean, unless we have the healthcare professionals. So anything anybody does has to focus on that. And some will focus on policy and become the best policy wings. So any way you could have PhD people who know about the economics of healthcare and can, you can put them off into that and have them work on that. And anyway, there are people that wanna do policy and have them think about what policies you need to have and what are the model policies and, and how do they work. And each country in you know, Rwanda has taken on palliative care to the, I mean, to the credit of, of uh, Eric Krakauer and the group in, Harvard, in, in, in um, Partners in Health and has put in a national policy and has made drug available and has figured out some of the economics of it. I mean, there's an example that could, we think that Rwanda would do that. And Vietnam that you mentioned, Connie, you know, one of the sad stories of Vietnam was, from Eric was that uh, they did not have much access to opioids. Initially, um, Eric worked hard in making that happen. And there was a foundation there, Atlantic Philanthropies did support Vietnam and they helped co-fund some of the activities there as well as Eric being able to get some national, uh, US government monies. However, um, in, in one of the hospices, they basically had a screaming room because when they had no opioids, they moved the patient into the screaming rooms because they had That's just awful. Wow. Well, but it was the reality. And, and you have to know, I mean, having been there, um, having been through South Africa um, and witnessing South Africa was so much better than some other countries. Um, because at least in South Africa, we eventually were able to get morphine because they had a really rich, Liz Gwither was the head of the hospice association there. So if we look at country models, Liz Gwither is a great model for having to talk about South Africa. You know, and it might be useful if you, you know, 10 minutes of South Africa and 10 minutes of Kenya sure. uh, and what Anne Merriman did. So Anne Merriman, you have to talk to because she's Uganda. And she like, and, and, and the wonderful thing that happened when we began our international palliative care initiative from Soros was that Joe O'Neill became head of the, the, uh, the PEPFAR program. And Joe was a friend and had a, clearly a, 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 a positive perspective about how uh, to move palliative care forward. And so he helped support the development of the African Palliative Care Association. But we were a major supporter of that because we needed to know that we needed associations on the ground, made up of the people on the ground, to be able to develop what they needed for palliative care, not what we wanted them to do. Right. And every country is different. <laughs> every society is different. So right. kind of coming back to your question about this, you know, Americans are, are not wishing to die. I've come to recognize that nobody ever wants to die. 
So I think, um, but they, but when they catch on to the fact that they're dying, then they want to die well. So we need to somehow or other frame it as if you are going to die, this is how you should die. And that if you don't get palliative care, then you've missed out on the best thing that could ever happen to you. So my perspective is, what do you mean you died and you didn't have palliative care? Well, then you had crappy medical care. That's it. So we need some way or other to say, what do you mean you didn't have palliative care? And I think the work that Diane has done in setting up CAPSI, and again, Soros was a major supporter of CAPSI. Um, they probably, he probably, this is post PDIA. Um, there was a grant that was made that didn't go directly to CAPSI, but eventually came to CAPSI of over, you know, eight or 10 million, $8 million over a period of time to CAPSI. They had to match the monies. They had to do all sorts of other hoops that they had to jump through, but they eventually did. So Soros was also a supporter of CAPSI in, in trying to move that forward in the US. Um, so I, I think, this issue of public attitudes is that um, that various strategies do work. Um, and there are people who teach you how to do campaigns and run campaigns, and we've learned a lot from them. So some campaigns we were out to go against the people. So we did, so coming out of the human rights efforts. So I think, again, maybe you might get some human rights person who wants to work on a PhD. And that person, we've, We've published a whole series of papers, not me, but individuals in our groups on what are the human rights of palliative care and what is the right to health? And then for what is it for children's palliative care? What are the specific rights for adults? And now for geriatrics. And there's a whole move continuing forward on, and COVID clearly was um, showed where it failed, is how we took care of the elderly and what the rights of the elderly are to receive good end of life care. So I think there's another whole dimension that you might um, have a talk on on what are the human rights issues. And, and I think I have a lot of these slide sets that when I can finally access where they are, I could send you some, which I'm happy to give you. Um, but I, I, think you, I think it would be good for them to understand the whole human rights dimension. So we started with the human rights dimension back with the International Association for the Study of Pain, where we said pain relief was a human right. The WHO agreed with it, everybody agreed with it, and it became sort of a mantra. We then moved forward with the idea that palliative care was a human right and created the background materials that you need to have to decide what makes something a human right. And then we went to, this, to the special rapporteur on torture and pleaded before that, that body uh, that, that people not receiving adequate pain relief um, were being tortured because they were receiving you know, unreasonable care and it was inhuman. And it met all the criteria. And then what we did, fast forward, is when the Human Rights Council would meet, we would bring different countries to the Human Rights Council and say that they had accused them of human rights abuses because they didn't have access to morphine available. I think that our human rights work was probably more powerful than anything we ever said about moral imperatives or do the right thing or anything else. Because there is a human rights framework that countries have to listen to. And by putting it into that framework, it was a powerful lens to advance palliative care. Because then we had a whole group of lawyers on our side who were great at advocating for human rights. And we were educating another group of people. And the second group who I think are so critically important are the economists. So years ago, I had written a, a, a chapter for Dean Jameson 
in his burden of disease books. And he became a wonderful friend and advocate of making morphine available for patients with pain and cancer, okay? And so he kept, he just couldn't understand why it couldn't happen and why we didn't do it and all of the above. And so fast forward from that, um, and this is, and I think it would be good, again, one could talk with Felicia Knoll to hear this story. Um, we were able to uh, develop a Lancet Commission on uh, pain and palliative care. And that report was published in 2018. And that Lancet Commission report basically help, had, is written by economists. Felicia Knoll is an economist. It's written by a public health expert, her husband, who was Julio Frank, who had been the, the head of the School of Public Health at Harvard, is now the president of the University of Miami. We had Paul Farmer, who had been really an enemy to palliative care in the beginning, who now was totally converted to palliative care. And, um, and Eric Krakauer was a major uh, writer on that, uh, an organizer on that piece. And what they came up with, it was what we all needed, was the concept of health-related suffering. So health-related suffering was gonna be the indicator or the measure by which we would evaluate populations to decide how much a government would then have to put out to cover the needs of the, the concerns of health-related suffering in patients. I would like you to know that the word suffering was never published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In fact, there's a paper about how they never wanted to use the word suffering. And yet we got this august body of Dean Jameson and Felicia Mall and all these big international global economists to agree that palliative care was a human right, that it was a public health issue, and that health-related suffering was the way we should talk about it, and that governments needed to assess the degree to which their population suffered from health-related suffering. So there's a whole angle on that. I mean, it's fascinating. I think what you're getting at is exactly what we're trying to think about with some of the with people coming in from PhD right. is that it's not just about clinical. There is so much broader to this, right? Of, okay. of you know, the policy, the social justice, the economics, the business, the public perception, um, all of it. And, and I think you're right in, in these days. Um, I mean, what people saw over the past year of COVID, I'll be very curious to see if that even sticks for them or if it kind of fades because they did see death in a very different way. I wouldn't say it was the way we wanted them to see it, although it was just the reality of what the pandemic has been um, and continues to be. But I think also of this part of, you know, I think what you're seeing, Dr. Foley, is like, in one sense, we kind of, uh, focus people get so focused on just the clinical because that's right in front of him but yeah. but that's not going to get us anywhere right we need that's to have the best clinicians in the world so right. everything we need to do is train them up right. but it's going to be the policymakers. it's going to be the economists it's going to be the politicians it's going to be those that make a difference and i think i mean use capsi as a model is an example where really the, it was a brilliant strategy which I give enormous credit to Rosemary Gibson and to Diane Meyer and everyone who's worked on it, to be able to make it possible for healthcare systems to know how to cost account for palliative care. Because if right. we don't pay for it, we're not gonna have it. The volunteerism is over. Right. So anybody who thinks that this is gonna be nice, you know, sweet care that we're gonna provide is not gonna happen. It's only- Go ahead. 
Well, I, we, you know, what I was just thinking is the financial people are so essential to us. Yeah. And I've come to grow to love them because they help so much. And that's why I think that Lancet article and sort of the methods that's out there. And then there's a, a newer one by Catherine Sleeman, who looked at 12 more countries, um, is so, so important. So when you think about where we've come in 40 years, right. um, I have two parts to this question. One, is this where you thought we would be? And two, where are you, what are you worried about for the future? Yeah, well, yeah, as you can see, I'm an optimist, okay? I've been in this field for a very, very long time. Um, and I think, I think it's come a long way. Um, and I think it's come a long way at, at each of the levels where I think uh, it's important. At the, clinical letter, at the clinical side, we now have an evidence base. So we were thought to be just these nice, compassionate people, and now we have an evidence base. Um, and that evidence base is growing day by day by day with extraordinary research coming out of nurses, physicians, economists, social historians. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, we have a policy agenda. So, and I'm going to treat, I'm going to put the world first because I have that interest and then I'll come back to the U.S. So at a world level, by passing the WHO resolution in 2014, every country is supposed to develop paleo care curves. And these countries signed on to it. So that WHO resolution was the kind of stick that we needed to hammer over the heads of the politicians and to say, what do you mean you don't have a policy? You signed on and said you do it. And you know, does that matter? It does if you keep doing it. It does if you keep reminding people. It does if you do report cards. If you does if it makes them not look so good on the, on the uh, international scene. So, for the example, in, in Ukraine, when the Minister of Health was told by colleagues at another meeting that you know, there was torture in Ukraine because they didn't have available morphine, he was like really embarrassed. And he said, I got to do something about it. And that was moving him forward to do that. So there is a shame blame kind of component to how policies make a difference. But the WHO resolution was, was important. All of the work, and I haven't spent time on this, is all of the work that has been done to create a concept of a balanced drug policy and what that concept of a balanced drug policy is. So um, an understanding that what are the risks for availability of opioids and what are the benefits. Um, but I, I think, so, so I'm optimistic that these, all of these stepping stones are there and now I think they're sort of like moving out and becoming assimilated into systems without necessarily being called palliative care. They're gonna be called supportive, you know, I mean, I wanna call this palliative care forever. Eduardo Barrera to succeed at MD Anderson called it supportive care. Every policy we've written has called it palliative care at an international level. So I wouldn't like to have to change that language back, okay? Um, my optimism also comes from the point that other groups have sort of signed on so there are three different, I think that maybe they're two different documents, um, maybe three, um, that a group in Italy did um, where the religions of the world signed on to palliative care. And so there are these three big declarations signed by the religions of the world saying palliative care is essential. And it was you know, Muslim and I mean, it, it was just, it's a broad, broad group. 
But that was like another group coming together who we didn't necessarily know that they would. And then at the same time, the Vatican, um, and Pope Francis has his own definition of palliative care, which is very much like the WHO one. Um, and basically the Vatican signed on to um, palliative care with the idea that palliative care should be widely available throughout all of the, um, their institutions and be fully supported. And their group people like Carlos Santana and a variety of people that have published on, on what the Pontifical Academy of Life, uh, it's called Pal Life and their whole programs. So that's like another group has come forth. And, and these keep popping up in different places of, of new other groups. So my enthusiasm is that people are slowly catching on. I think coming back to the US, I think because of the work of CATSI and, and really the work of the American Academy of Hospice and Paleo Medicine, of HIPNA, of all of, and, and a variety of, of the National Hospice and Paleo Care Organizations, all of whom seem to be on the same page pretty much uh, with idea of how to getting, getting care paid for and how to get it paid for, I think that coming together is moving the, the care system forward better. So I'm quite optimistic that, you know, it's gonna still be bumpy, um, that, you know, nobody's gonna race to think you want to have a palliative care doctor, but you know, when you need it, you're gonna want it and you're gonna have it. And I'm seeing more and more people that, who would not even mention palliative care to me. I'm, I'm here in the middle of Idaho and I met a, a local doctor here um, and he said, you know, uh, you know, paleo care really has changed what we do. And um, I sit on the Connick Dixon um, Award Foundation um, and, you know, reviewing these hundreds of applications. I mean, there's like a thousand points of light of great doctors um, in these communities. It's a deaf physician award um, that are doing amazing things, you know, with whatever resources they can do. So I'm optimistic because I think we're coming to become a more mature country that understands why we need palliative care. So we just got to fix the policy. We got to fix the monies and we need people like a Diane and, and many more like her who know how to do this. So, you know, if you could train a whole group of Harvard MBAs in palliative care, that'd be great. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm using these as like examples, but this is, you know, who we need on our side to do this. So that's my optimism. Um, and and the, the, the probably uh, what I think have been the things that we didn't do well is we haven't created this large huge civil society of people who are out there marching in the streets like the AIDS group. Um, and you know, it's because we're not a disease. And because anybody who has a disease, be it cancer, be it AIDS, be it ALS, everybody wants a cure. So we palliative care people have to be on the side of cure. Okay, we just have to be on the side of care. So when in 2001, I we published with uh, the National Cancer Policy Board, um, a report, um, improving palliative care for cancer. Okay, and every deficit you can imagine. Do you know that at that point in time, the National Cancer Institute never used the word death. They only used language like mortality figures. When patients were sick and dying, they never talked about hospice or palliative care, except maybe in one line. We went through every document. We had a student that went through every document. And the only people that talked about death were the military in their Department of Defense breast cancer programs, where when you go to those meetings, they'd have a picture of every dead woman who was in the military who died of breast cancer. Because the military memorializes the dead. The National Cancer Institute buries the dead. So we have to understand that this is our culture. 
Now, has NCI gotten better? Yes. Has the American Cancer Society gotten better? Yes. But let me tell you, it took a long time for both of them to be on the page to talk about dying. The American Cancer Society told me if we talked about dying, then nobody would want to get treated. They'd be so frightened. So I said, well, could we just listen to every one of your little groups and let's hear what the patients are saying on those groups. And you get on a, you know, a bladder cancer group or you get on a breast cancer group and you're just listening to the conversations and their first thing is, I thought it was gonna die. Well, if it's their first line, like we can help them because if you're gonna die, we know how to die well. So how do we, you know, I mean, the, the, both of you know this. So I'm just making the point that this has been, you know, you've been through it, you know, all of these pieces, but it was so real at that time. It was constantly in our face. When the national cancer director at the time, when we wrote this report, it was supposed to be presented uh, to the board of overseers. It happened to be the day that um, the Twin Towers fell. I am in Washington standing, waiting to give my presentation and watching the Twin Towers fail, the meeting gets canceled. And you know, it was like death trumps death in that one. So that was the end of that. Um, so, uh, but then, you know, the NCI did move forward and did do a lot of great programs and did create a palliative care program at the um, at NIH, which to its credit, um, and did, you know, create a, a funding strategy for palliative care. But, you know, is it enough? No. Was it enough? No. Um, um, so, there, I mean, there've been, I mean, one could go through a list of bad things that happen and negative things, but I'm not there. And, you know, and lastly, on the opioid epidemic, as you know, um, as a major advocate, and, and so this is it, as a major advocate of improving pain management for patients, um, clearly the large number of patients who were receiving palliative care who had non-cancer pain should, were individuals that we advocated for. Um, and these were people who were dying, and as you know, the support study showed that two-thirds of the dying had significant pain. The nursing home patients had no access to pain relievers. This is in the U.S., in the 1990s, 2000s, the work of Joan Tenno, many other people, um, Sean Morrison. So, so, you know, how do we separate the palliative care people from the other groups of patients with chronic non-malignant pain? And then the, the debacle that happened in the opioid epidemic. And so um, I think that's been a terrible, terrible um, uh, problem. Um, and I think, I'm hoping that um, the, the pendulum will switch will start swinging back appropriately. But in the process, a lot of science has been misrepresented. A lot of people have been um, accused of things that are not true, myself included. Um, and the pain patient, um, both the pain patient with cancer or with serious medical illness um, is being undertreated for their pain. So that's a very big issue. So you should also have your people read, you know, the, the books about the pain issue if they're interested in that piece. No, I mean, I think, that, yeah, I, I worry that too, of where we are in the pendulum and the politics. And I mean, I think though, the other thing that you went back to Dr. Foley is, is even just talking about um, uh, if you look at equity, you know, the amount of opioids that United States has compared to the rest of the world to begin with, right? And, um, and then I don't know, and you, both of you probably know much better in terms of the opioid crisis in the United States, how do we compare to other countries even with any- Well, I mean, but use Germany as the example. I mean, Lucas Radford could talk to this. Germany has as much opioid per population and they didn't have an opioid epidemic mm. okay. because they have a care system. Those patients get care. 
they see a doctor. Mm. They have an assigned physician. They have assigned physical therapy. They have assigned other approaches. It's pretty extraordinary. Wow. So, so uh, this is an American problem, an American disease um, created by an American, um, created by a group of Americans that uh, that in which everyone plays, you know, should should take some piece of the blame. But the sad part of it coming out of this is that the deep pockets of the pharmaceutical companies um, will go to hopefully help treat addiction, which I totally think is the most important thing that could happen. But it's not to do anything related to pain. It's not going to help the pain patient. It's not going to make drugs available. And um, and the, the CDC guidelines have had really a significant impact mm -hmm. on uh, access to medications. Yeah. So, uh, so what I've worked on, you know, and making this concept that that pain that opioids were a mainstay of therapy for cancer pain, and the WHO still says that. It's just not possible to get them in these countries. And they're using the opioid epidemic in the U.S. as an excuse. Yeah. It's pretty extraordinary. Is there anything that you feel like that you, I mean, you've offered so many places for our students to think about and, and all the resources. Is there any other place that you sort of feel like um, we haven't, that, you know, as, as palliative care has evolved here, that we haven't focused on that maybe is like, you know, that's a place we just didn't go to or we didn't get to. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that we, we probably did as well as we might have done um, in sort of closed systems like prisons. I mean, we moved it, you know, there are hospices and prisons, but I think that's a issue. Mm -hmm. So I think this Angola prison film is really pretty amazing. Um, and maybe you've seen it so, but it's 20 minutes, but it's like, it's it mind, mind changing. I mean, there they're slipping MS content through the walls. The doors of the prison and the volunteers um, of hospice are inmates, some of whom said the last time I saw a patient die was the person I killed. So pretty powerful. Um, and creating you know rituals and, and support for those individuals. Um, I think pediatric palliative care too is so extraordinary. And that field is just is blossoming forth incredibly well. And luckily, you know, there were 43,000 43, kids in the US who die each year, at least, um, you know, we could take, we should do this well. I mean, this is not a no brainer. Mm -hmm. So these are areas we could do this really well. And there are such great, great physicians and nurses and psychologists and social workers doing this. So like, oh, what a field, you know, what a, they're just extraordinary, like extraordinary. I'm like, I'm humbled by everyone who does this work because they're so extraordinary. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I think the question is, will people who get this PhD be able to use it? <laughs> um, and I think yes, because I think every system is going to need to have individuals with this level of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly at an international level, so I'm quite, I'm really a fan of this, have you talked at all with Irene Higginson and the group at Cecily Saunders? Because Irene, you know, um, because they, they obviously they do a PhD program and they've done one that, again, we supported through our International Palliative Care Initiative to encourage international PhD students. So they've had great students in Africa, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but Irene now is in another position where she's sort of head of not only the, she's like head of the, what is it, the Florence Nightingale School of Nursing plus something else. I mean, she has like another component. So 
I think they would be great to talk with because I think they're an extraordinarily great research group um, at an international level. So if there's a way to work with them or, um, and I think Irene would be good because you're gonna get an over the water view of this <laughs> over the phone view. And, she, and she's more, um, she's tougher on the field. <laughs> I'm like kinder to it, <laughs> you know? I've spoken to the people that run her PhD program. It's a very impressive program. Oh, it's extraordinary. They're great. They're totally great. Yes, there are three in the UK, Liverpool, King's College, and uh, Lancaster. Right. Yes, in Lancaster, right. Yes. And who is that? Sheila Payne is in Lancaster? I'm not sure who it is. I'm not. No, it's a gentleman. I've forgotten the name. But I mean, but I think, you know, I mean, again, the best the best is that if all of us can like, so what I, I found, if, if there's a way that no one feels in competition, mm-hmm. but in collaboration, you mm-hmm. know, instead of creating that. Oh my gosh, I talked to Kings and to uh, Lancaster and they were incredibly gracious. In I bet. Insights and they wished us nothing but the best um, in launching our program. So I agree. I think um, we could use 10 more programs just like any of these. To get the so I want to know what you guys think is the future. I mean, what do you think the big challenges are out there? Oh boy, that's a loaded question, huh, Connie? Like, who's going to pay for this PhD then? How much does it cost to do? It's not going to be bad, actually. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a three year program. If you apply yourself, you can get it done in three years. And tuition is is not terribly high, all things considered. This is not one of those. I mean, most PhD programs, you know, you bring the the young person into your college and they live in the basement for five years and they get a stipend to be a graduate assistant. This is not like that. This is a adult learners. It's completely online. It's asynchronous. They pay their tuition. They do their work. They're not a graduate student uh, and they have a full dissertation committee like everyone else. So uh, wow. we value a very, very, very practical applied process in education. So they're getting all the appropriate coursework. And I'm a little greedy. I don't want them to just be researchers, although they will be good researchers. I want visionaries who are amazing educators, who are advocates, both in their community, within the profession and worldwide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I think also the other thing, Dr. Foley, is that you know when we created the course, what I was saying is we have made it very clear. Um, and you've kind of gone that way of sort of saying, we need people who are policy people. We need people who are creating new technologies um, to think about this. We need people who are thinking about the quality metrics so that when we're saying it's good, it's good. We need, um, you know, still people to think about what is this interprofessional work? Because I think where people mostly focused, and you mentioned this, is that um, this part about you know, heart, having the heart. And if we're good at clinician, everything will change. And I think, you know, that was lovely. And, but the naivete that we've moved beyond that and that, you know, reimbursement is important. And if people don't understand that reimbursement has to support a practice, you know, they're going to fail, right? And, and so really trying to give people this broader context to really show the evolution of the field, but also just the evolution of the world. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, I think some of the people 
you mentioned a little bit about policy and if we bring it to the United States, you know, it's been 10 years since we've been talking about Pachita. And, you know, my question is like, so yeah. do we need to move on from Pachita? You know, that- oh, it, what, Tell me what happened. Did it get a, it did pass or what? It, it, no, it, it was about to be passed last year, but then it got pushed off the last minute because of the pandemic. And, and you know, and but I just think in my mind, I'm-, I'm And I tell you, we started, Pachita, we started that in 1995 or six, okay? With, wow. with, with the, so this is a very long, you know. So it just feels like, you know, at some point, you know, of like us learning with palliative care that, you know, one pain medicine isn't right. You got to think about this strategy. Like, you know, do you put all your eggs in one basket or do you start, start thinking of a multi-prong approach and what you yeah. were talking about of. I'm sort of uh, let a thousand flowers grow because you don't know what they're going to grow to. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what we're trying to, to think about. And, and I think you've given people so much thought about all the different pieces and that the history um, has been sort of this knitting together of this fabric in so many different ways, right? Of being woven together and what we have now, um, people would have no idea of how much history is behind it. Um, and, and really, I mean, I think we have evolved with all of the struggles, you know, if you think about it, from where you were saying we had Brompton's cocktail and now we have all these different opioids, whether they people can afford them or not by the insurance, that's beside the point, we at least have them, right? So we're trying to figure that out. Um, but then also, you know, what you said of knowing which patients we should be using, what medications and of thinking about all of these other pieces, you know, I think that we are becoming more sophisticated and um, I still worry myself about, um, if I think about program development, people want the recipe and it's like, well, no, no, there might be some ingredients, but you're going to use different amounts of everything, right? One program is one program. And you, and you've already said this, it really depends on the context and the environment, even in the United States, what happens in a rural area right. in right. Idaho might be really different from New York city. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you learn, like what you said, a needs assessment to take all that in and figure out the players? I do feel like the one place in the United States that we have, we have a great amount to learn from other countries is really this community health worker model. I yes, think yes, yes, yes. so resistant to it because it's not medical, right? And yet, if you think about communities and having that broker, if you will, who knows the community, who can translate that, who knows the resources, you know, that if we, maybe if we start integrating that more and then we shift from a fee-for-service model, maybe that's where our hope is. And so that's where I kind of think about this work in the community, that that's where we're going to look at Africa, looking at... Um, and, and India had this extraordinary India. community. Wow. Right. That was a really extraordinary model. Although yeah. in the beginning, when Ira Bayak um, uh, was in Missoula, um, the... I think the mayor of Missoula, Montana, of, of, of Missoula, who also was a, an academic, um, was a, a believer in communitarian theories. And so he, a part of Ira's project there was all about the community. You know, I'd have to go back and look at that, but I think he did a lot of work on community work at, at using Missoula, Montana. Um, and he was funded by RWJ. Yeah. Um, but I do, I think, um, I do think in looking at at clearly uh, middle and low income patients, um, that this issue of um, community workers tied to that. So there's a group, do you know this group called, I think it's called City Health or City Health Advocates or something. I don't know if you know about them, but what they've done is they've contracted with Medicaid mm -hmm. to get 
patients, keep people out of the ERs and mm. keep them um, going to regular doctors on a regular basis. And so I recently was talking with someone who works for them and they're, they're you know, this is a master's level, with a, uh, has a master's in public health who's doing this kind of work where she's acting as the community health worker, getting them to the right doctors, getting their diabetes under control, that sort of thing, and is this mediator. So here's a skilled for, so I think that's a great kind of model. And I gather this group, I can send you that, I'll look up their name, and, uh, but, uh, but I'm quite impressed with that it would be a great model for the palliative care piece of this, because it's a population as well, who often doesn't receive adequate care and then ends up wanting, or, or whether they want or not, getting the Cadillac of care that they don't need, um, and also uh, not necessarily respecting their choices for how they would like to die. So I think that's another kind of a great model that would be possible. I think there are lots of different smart opportunities, but I think my, my concern is, is that um, we're just not gonna have enough great doctor leaders to do this because everything has gotten so hard to do. Right. You know, well, I think the only thing that you made me Everything has gotten hard to do. Yeah. And everything in medicine is transactional and not right. person-centered. Right. I think the only other place that I think also we can learn internationally is, is when you also look at, you know, health disparities and some of the structural racism that also, you know, includes palliative care. And so how are we going to kind of break through some of that? So if, you know, I think of what you've done in other countries, we probably also have a lot to learn in those areas as well. Oh, yeah. The people are just, I mean, just extraordinary what they've done. But not, I can only tell you that across the board, you know, as much as they say, well, people in Africa are more accepting of dying. Uh, I don't think anybody's accepting of dying. Nobody's acceptable. <laughs> no. So I think, but, you know, there are cultural aspects of, of what happens and how they do this. Well, Dr. Foley, this has been magnificent, truly magnificent. You are, I admire you so much and your lifetime of work. It, it almost moves me to tears, truly. Yeah. It's great work. So lots of good supporters. Okay. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you very much. Connie, let us words for you as we wrap no, up. No, thank you again for what okay. you've done. And thank you for all your wisdom for, I mean, well, this, keep me in I the think loop. We're, what you're doing. Okay. We're, well, we're going to make this a required recording for our students because you have offered so much for them. Um, and so we're grateful for that. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.